Hallelujah. Father in heaven, we thank you that through your holy scriptures that we can behold your providence through the course of your work through history. Last time we were in your holy word, the blinds of providence were lifted as we beheld men of faith who were moved by the Spirit of God before Christ had even arrived in time to place their hope and obedience firmly upon your promises in the record of Abel, Noah, of Enoch, of Jephthah, of Samson, of Moses, of Joseph, of Abraham, of Jacob, and Isaac, Lord, of Samuel, of David, and others. And as we see, Lord, the record of how you moved through history, our faith is stirred. But, Lord, nothing compares to the power of beholding Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we, as we behold you in your word, I pray that you would stir our faith and our confidence greater still today. As we see the King of Kings prophesied and proclaimed in Psalm 72, I pray that our allegiance, our faithfulness, our worship, and our devotion to Him and Him alone would be stirred. I pray, Lord, that you would go forth, Father, through the proclamation of your word, calling sinners unto repentance, calling believers to greater convicted faithfulness, Lord, calling us to consistency in our confession and in our proclamation that Jesus is Lord, and there is no competitor, no close second place for His throne. Thank You that You forever reign, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, upon the throne of David. Thank You that Your kingdom is expanding, that Your glory is announced and spreading across this earth as the waters cover the sea. And thank You that You have given us the sweet privilege of participating in that great event, as we see, Lord, your grace upon us to behold and then to be foot soldiers, Lord, for the message of truth going forth to this generation. We pray that you would accomplish these things through the proclamation and through our assimilating your holy word by the Spirit's use of this means today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a precious gift the Holy Word of God is before us today. Let us behold some of the treasures therein contained by turning to Psalm 72. Turn in your scriptures to Psalm 72. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Today's message is entitled, The Ideal King. You could say, The Perfect King. What would the ideal, the perfect ruler look like? Every four years or so, we ask ourselves, what is the best possible choice among this slate of candidates to be president of these United States? How close are they to the ideal president? And we all have in the back of our minds a list of specifications and qualifications for who that might be. And then we judge this slate of candidates against that standard. Well, the answer to who the perfect ruler would look like is given to us in Psalm 72. And as we behold these words, we find that the standard of power and perfection is so high and lofty indeed that there is only one, there has only been one and will ever be only one who can fill those shoes. And that is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the only ideal King. The aim of, aim of this morning's message is that as we appreciate the attributes of Christ's Lordship, 
laid out before us in Psalm 72, that we would realize their power as prophecy and also their usefulness as standards. Standards meaning this is what the king, the attributes of leadership look like. That would be the standard aspect. And prophecy, these words were proclaimed hundreds of years before Christ came and he fulfilled them perfectly. In Psalm 72, we can appreciate both of these. Stand with me, if you would, with your Bible open to Psalm 72, and let us behold the Holy Word of God. This psalm comes to us under the title of Solomon. In Psalm 72, verse 1, we read, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him, verse 12, for he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land and the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruits be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. Verse 17, may his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Verse 20. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of God. You may be seated. What a powerful song. What glorious odes to the sovereignty, the rule of Christ our Lord, and truly a beautiful picture of the ideal king. Psalm 72 closes the second book of the Psalter. You may not have realized this. I didn't realize it so clearly until I began preaching through the Psalms and got to Psalm 41. But the Psalms are actually divided into five books. You might note in your book that at the end of Psalm 72, there's a title or an insert, book 3, and then Psalm 73 begins. Psalm 72, uh, therefore, closes the second book of the Psalter. The uh, books are as follows. Book 1 of the Psalms, the Psalms 
1 through 41, book 2 of the Psalms, Psalms 42 through 72, this is the close of the book uh, that we have before us today, book 3, 73 through 89, book 4, 90 through 106, and book 5, 107 through 50. The collection is therefore arranged in five parts, perhaps echoing the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. That number five is a, structure, a point of reference for biblical structure. Each book closes doxologically. That means with a praise song glorifying the Lord, extolling Him, the Lord, blessing Him with worship and praise. And as an aside for you, if you'd like to just do an amazing study this week, I would encourage you to compare the close of each closing psalm of each book. If you go through your scriptures and you take Psalm 41 and see how it closes, then read Psalm 72, then 89, then 106, then 150, you begin to see a unifying theme. In every case, the Lord is exalted, blessings from the people's lips are offered to His name, there's an indication of forever, everlasting glory being ascribed to Him, and in all but one case, they close with amen and often amen and amen. So the books of the Psalms close this way, and they're a sort of exclamation point, an underscore, an amen, if you will, even in the praise that calls our attention to the certainty, the power, the authority, and the truth of all that the Psalter extols. These notes of emphatic conclusion proclaim and bid, they call, for the mutual affirmation of the singers of these great songs to proclaim the glories of the Lordship of the one ultimate and true King of Kings. He, that is, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, may I submit to you this morning, is the final subject of all the Psalms, including ours today. He is the ultimate person in view, the ultimate object of this praise. As is often the case, however, the author of this psalm utilizes the occasion as an object lesson, if you will, of the royal uh, throne of David. He uses, utilizes the occasion of the royal calling of the throne of David to extol the virtues of the ideal king. And these qualifications, therefore, are a mandate and prayer for David and his sons, Solomon, we think of, and others in his lineage to live up to in part, but they are more. Psalm 72 is more than just a prayer that David or Solomon could fulfill. The psalm transcends the capacity of a mere earthly king. There are things that Psalm 72 prophesies that no mere man could ever fulfill. Therefore, Psalm 72 points forward to the truly ideal King of Kings, the Son of David, as we have come to know Him through Matthew's Gospel. The Son of David, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, ultimate heir to the throne of David. Jesus Christ, uh, therefore, is the ultimate subject of this psalm, and this psalm becomes a coronation theme or an ode, a song that's fitting for a ceremony where he assumes the throne of his father at his ascension and thus spans promises and proclamation across the landscape of Scripture. If you go back to Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3, you see promises that were given to Abraham, promises that it is said his lineage would fulfill. But Abraham, of a man, uh, uh, in and of himself, 
would never retain the capacity to do so. Abraham, as a fallen and fickle, frail individual as we find him in Scripture, could never hope to make these things come to pass. Yet it was said to him, I will make of you, Genesis 12, 2, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How in the world could that ever come true of me? He must have thought. Well, the answer, how that comes true for Abraham, how this covenant is ultimately fulfilled, is given in the ideal king, the ideal heir of David's throne. After all, in Matthew, he's not just called the son of David, but he's also called the son of Abraham. And so we see fulfilled in the text these glorious promises of old. So it's no surprise then, given this prior promise, that of the ultimate king, it says in verse 17, may people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. As we see this uh, promise toward the beginning of the canon, we're reminded of one at the close, where Abraham receives the covenant of blessing that through him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in Revelation eleven fifteen, there's words of fulfillment when the voices of heaven, this is our worship text this morning, shout the 24 elders joining in song, saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. So there you have it, from Genesis to Revelation. This anticipation, this proclamation of the ideal king. And right here in the center, in the Psalms, we see that, they, that the author picks up on this theme. Blessed be, verse 19, His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Let us look a little closer at some characteristics of the ideal king. I have a heading for considering this psalm today. The ideal kingdom is characterized by the following. There's six points, which is more than we usually have, but they'll just kind of, we'll go through them rather swiftly as we consider this psalm and digest its uh, scope. Number one, justice. The ideal kingdom is characterized by justice. Number two, permanence. The ideal kingdom is characterized by permanence. Number three, influence. Number four, salvation. Number five, legacy. Number six, worship. Justice, verses one through four. Permanence, five through seven. Influence, eight through 11. Salvation, 12 through 14. Legacy, 15 through 17. And worship, 18 through 20. Let us consider justice. The ideal kingdom and the ideal king is characterized, he's marked, he's qualified by his grasp and his use or the adjudication, if you will, ruling according to justice and righteousness. Notice again, Psalm 72, 1 through 4. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. So these are necessary qualifications to be ascribed to the king who's qualified to rule. The ideal king, that is to say, will be just. He will be righteous. Verse 2, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people 
Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. The ideal kingdom is characterized by justice. Now, justice is a word we hear so often in our culture today, in blogs and news feeds and advocacy movements, political speech and so on, that it might lose its sharpness and meaning. We might define it in our minds by associations with just with all of the different parties that try to cry out, oh, I deserve justice or justice looks like this or I want to advocate for justice in the following way. To help us clarify what true justice is, I think this summary is helpful. This is Easton's Bible Dictionary. Listen to this definition of justice as the scriptures define it. That perfection, justice is, that perfection of his nature, it is the Lord's nature, the one true God, the ideal king. The perfection of his nature whereby he is infinitely righteous in himself and in all he does. The righteousness of the divine nature exercised in his moral government. At first God imposes righteous laws on his creatures and executes them righteously. Justice is not an optional product of his will but an unchangeable principle of his very nature. His legislative justice is his requiring of his rational creatures, conformity in all respects to the moral law. His rectoral or distributive justice is his dealing with his accountable creatures according to the requirements of the law in rewarding or punishing them, cites Psalm 89.14. In remunerative justice, he distributes rewards, James 1.12, 2 Timothy 4.8. In victive or punitive justice, he inflicts punishment on account of transgression, 2 Thessalonians 1.6. He cannot, as being indefinitely righteous, do otherwise than regard and hate sin as intrinsically hateful and deserving of punishment, he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 His essential and eternal righteousness immutably determines him to visit every sin as such with merited punishment. Close quote. This is biblical justice. There is a standard, his holy law, the perfection and righteousness he requires, and then there are consequences for falling short. Perfect justice is the proportional punishment ascribed to the proportional sin or crime against the law of God. How can we be saved? We are all sinners in this room. You know, the most important question for the sinner to ask is how can God be just and I be justified? How can I escape the judgments of God though a sinner? And you know the answer if you're in Him today. Because you have met the justice of God for your sin in Christ. Christ took your sin upon Himself and took the punishment, the proportional justice that your sin deserves so that God could be justified in declaring you righteous by giving you the righteousness of the Son and giving your punishment to Him to bear on His torn back and bleeding body on Calvary. This is the justice displayed on the cross by the ideal king. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. The ideal kingdom is characterized by justice. I mentioned briefly before that justice is a very popular term these days. What we have organized for ourselves in this sort of identity politics culture is all kinds of disparate factions. Sometimes they divide themselves by special interests. 
Sometimes they divide themselves by political concerns, sometimes by ethnicity, sometimes by majority versus minority. And they sign for themselves uh, different leaders and advocates and lobbyists, and they beseech the ruler of our day, the king as it were, in as much as he's represented, represented by our legislature and president, and they say, my group deserves justice. We need justice for this minority group. We need justice for this uh, group of business owners over here or for these farmers and their agricultural endeavors over there. We need justice for this marginalized identity that defines themselves by their aberrant uh, sexual proclivities. We need justice. We need justice. And everyone cries out for it in the streets. Do they realize what they are asking for? They're not asking for justice on God's terms. They're asking for it on their own. As if society was arranged by a million little gods crying out, this is righteousness, this is righteousness. There is only one God. And therefore, there is only one authority in all the universe who retains the right to establish justice and to establish righteousness. Turn briefly to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is the close of another book of Psalms in the Psalter. And in Psalm 89, these theme, many of these themes are reiterated. Particularly in view is righteousness and justice as we consider verse 14. It says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. Do you see what the claim is, the Word of God? The claim is that the foundational principles of all just rule, the ideal king, the ideal leadership, recognizes that justice and righteousness are the foundation of the throne of God Himself. And steadfast love and faithfulness, he also, it, he also defines. And because he owns the rights to these things and grants them to no one, we all are bound to submit to his rule. And only in glorying in his strength will we find favor and will we find strength, our horn be exalted. This is the message of Psalm 72 and Psalm 89. Justice and righteousness are the Lord's. And the ideal king recognizes that and submits to the righteousness of Almighty God. So the terms have been clarified for us in the Scripture. What is justice? What is righteousness? It is the law of God proclaimed by Him by which the, the uh, consequences are perfectly metered out. He has the authority to declare what is true and He has the power to enforce it by justice or by granting mercy upon a substitute sacrifice, satisfying the terms whereby he has established his own throne, justice and righteousness. Secondly, under this idea of justice, we have a test case in view. If the ideal kingdom is characterized by justice, notice that the extent and the perfection and the application of this justice that is required is illustrated by its application to the poorest and the needy of the people. Notice in verse 4, May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. 
Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. In other words, the ideal kingdom is characterized by justice. Justice for the rich and justice for the poor. There is in the ideal kingdom an equal hearing before the authority of one who has no means and the one who can afford the top-notch crack lawyers that this litigious society can offer. This is the standard of justice. There is no impartiality in the ideal magistrate. He rules according to righteousness, no matter how many riches a person could boast to to bribe or to, to work the system or to twist the truth or to gain himself some arbitrary footing to negotiate and to get off with a little less than the poor guy who can't afford to pay an attorney and stands before the judge naked as it were without the ability to self-justify even one iota. Does our society guarantee perfect justice whether you can afford a great attorney or not? No, it does not. Why? Because our society, to the degree that justice has fallen in the public square, does not affirm, does not bow before, does not submit to the ideal king. And to that degree, we are guilty of sin and we must repent. When I was doing some research with this last election, I came upon a tragic court case where a high roller, you know, Wall Street type insider, political donor, was charged and indeed convicted for several cases of underage sexual abuse. His name is Jeffrey Epstein. And this individual was able to purchase for himself Ken Starr and a few of these other celebrated crack attorneys and to negotiate his case down so, as I recall, by the time all the smoke cleared, he could go home or he had to uh, spend the night in jail for a little while, but during the day he could conduct his affairs at his thriving financial firm and continue with all his uh, goings-on. And actually, as I understand it, the prosecutor in charge of this case now serves in some administrative role uh, in the government even today. Well, there was a group of his victims that sued the federal government because they said, this punishment we do not think is just, and the law says we must agree to it before a plea bargain is actually affirmed in this case. I have no idea where that case stands. But as far as Epstein, I think he basically is a free man. He had to register as a level three sexual offender, but he was able to use his money to great advantage. Now, ironically, in this situation, there was an aide in his office who stole a book. It was a day planner that was absolutely incriminating evidence. And that man, because he stole that book and then tried to sell it in order to make the case stronger, had to serve more time in jail than the man who actually perpetrated these great crimes against the helpless, against the defenseless, and against those victims who had far less money and were in the state where they uh, were uh, easily exploited. He had to serve far more time. Why do I give you such a highly specific example? I give you this to illustrate That in our land today, the only thing that will bring truth, righteousness, repentance back to our land is to be able to take up the Word of God, consider a case like that, recognize where it falls short, and speak truth to 
to the power of our day that has let justice go and put it up for sale, for bid, for auction, so that those who can afford the most money and hire the most sharp lawyers are less likely to suffer the consequences for their sin. This is not ideal leadership. This is a system of jurisprudence that is in defiance against the true king of kings that must repent or itself it will be judged. How do we know that there is justice and righteousness in our land? Not when every special interest group has secured a lobbyist or can afford an attorney to twist the arm of people in power, but instead when justice and righteousness are defended in the cause of the poor and the rich without partiality. When deliverance is offered to the children of the needy and the oppressor who used his power, his position, and his riches to exploit the vulnerable, gets his just day in court and has served a biblical sentence for his crimes. The ideal kingdom is characterized by justice and by righteousness. We see what the terms are in Scripture. And the test case is those who are most likely to be exploited and most vulnerable among us and most easily harmed, are they protected by the justice and righteousness exalted and proclaimed, defended and affirmed in our society? This is what characterizes the ideal kingdom. Secondly, permanence. The ideal kingdom is characterized by permanence. Notice in verses 5 through 7, May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Now you can see very quickly in this psalm that the command and the expectation for the king far surpasses anything that David or Solomon could fulfill as two examples the greater king of greater kings through history. Could David himself ever uh, be feared as long as the sun endures or as long as the moon throughout all generations? Could Solomon ever be like rain that falls on the mown grass that waters the earth, causing the righteous to flourish and peace to abound till the moon be no more? No. David and Solomon were symbols. They were types. They served uh, in a partial role to proclaim what would come of the ideal king, Jesus Christ, later. As people learn to fear Christ, only then will the permanence of his kingdom be realized as long as the sun endures. This poetic language saying, as long as the forces of nature hold the earth in orbit and preserve life on this planet, may these truths rule and reign, and may this king never lose the authority of his throne. Jesus Christ alone is fit for this position. He alone is like the rain that falls on the mown grass, no matter what era, what century, what moral dilemma, what gross national sin we face as a people here or in other nations. He alone, submission to Him, repentance to the standard of His law, because we have fallen short of His glory as a nation and as individuals, only then will we receive rain that will fall on the mown grass and sprout once again spiritual and social life back into the soil of this decrepit nation. Only when Christ is affirmed, 
Only when we see in Him that his day, in His days the righteous flourish, peace abounds till the moon be no more. These are Messiah's shoes that the ideal king is called to fulfill. We see that in this language, as long as the sun endures and as long as the moon and the association with seasonal rain, we see uh, in this poetry, it's a, it's a kind of, uh, it's a type of saying, long live the king. How long should the king live? As long as the natural order is preserved and beyond. The duration and dependability of the heavenly bodies and the seasons that change with regularity and predictability, those are used as metaphors to help us understand the permanence of the ideal kingdom. That is to say, the ideal king, could only, fulfilling these verses we just read, could only be the one who made the moon in the first place. The ideal king is the one who made the sun in the first place. May they fear you while the sun endures. We fear Christ who set the sun in its place to rule the day. We fear Christ who created the moon to rule the night. We fear Christ. The Word became flesh. And that Word that was there in the beginning, creating out of nothing with the triune God, the world that we enjoy. And so we fear the ideal King. As we see this message of permanence, we find throughout the Scripture that it is reiterated, the fulfillment is reiterated in Christ alone, the ultimate fulfillment. One example of this is when Gabriel himself, the heavenly messenger, delivers the word of God to Mary, the future mother of Christ. And we find this account in Luke 1, 32-33, answering the question, what can she expect of this divine son formed and conceived of the Spirit in her womb? Gabriel answers this question by saying, Luke 1, 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Here we have conceived in the womb of Mary the ideal king prophesied in Psalm 72. Listen, 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Of this child in the womb of Mary, it was said in so many words, as long as the sun endures and while the moon rules the night, Christ is king and more. That these metaphors of permanence, of duration, and dependability can ultimately be ascribed to one king alone, and he is king of kings. He is Messiah. What is the fruit of fearing this Messiah? What are the benefits or effects of fearing this one? You know, we live in a day, brief aside, we live in a day where people fear the authority, most likely, that tangibly affects them. Judgment Day comes at the end of every man's life and at the end of history. But it's easy to kick that can of reckoning down the road because not everyone sees the pressing truth because their eyes are blinded by sin that they will all answer to the law of Christ one day. But everyone is familiar with the IRS because if they don't pay their taxes, you know, there's some recompense. There are consequences for that behavior. So what happens is people tend to fear the government who wields the sword over them more than the one who wields the two-edged sword of the Word of God, Christ Himself. 
This is a mistake. In fearing the government more than fearing Christ, we find that we ascribe worship and honor and sovereignty to something lesser than Him. We become idolaters, even if it's a scared kind of fear. And certainly if it's an honor kind of fear. The message of Psalm 72 is fear the ideal king. Fear the king of kings. The consequences of fearing anyone less are the consequences of justice due the idolater. However, the consequences of fearing Jesus Christ are different. Notice what happens to those in verse 7. It says, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May they fear you while the sun endures, verse 5. And, the, and then uh, as, as the a word continues, as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on mown grass, sprouting new life to those who affirm him, like showers that water the earth, those who enjoy his rule, who ascribe glory unto their king. And in verse 7, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. The fruit of fearing the ideal King Jesus, is that we have righteousness that flourishes in us and in our land. Temporally speaking, the Scriptures affirm, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Righteousness will again rule. Magistrates will become convicted. People will throw out those who do not affirm the true and holy Word of God in their rulings. And the land will cry out once again that Christ be honored and that our rulers submit to him. And we hold our president and his cabinet and legislatures accountable to the greater king. When this happens, the fruit of this kind of thing is a flourishing of righteousness among the people. And it benefits everyone. This righteous will flourish whether or not this nation repents. Yet the message is repent America for worshiping a lesser king. This righteousness will flourish, though, for us, because we worship the true king if you're a Christian today in the future. And we will one day inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And in the new heavens and new earth, ruled by the king of kings, without him suffering any usurpers to his throne anymore, righteousness and peace abound. Brothers and sisters, we are plagued with war in this land. Do you realize that the longest running war in American history is still going right now? The war in Afghanistan has no end in sight. And when you listen to advocates for foreign policy talk about the importance of this action or that, it seems the further we go in this operation, the less clarity as to its objective. We can't leave now. Certainly the resurgence will happen again and Al-Qaeda or ISIS will take over. We are plagued with unrest. We are plagued with fear. A little dude with a funny haircut halfway around the globe is boasting weapons he says can take out major cities or territories of importance to us. And this dominates the news cycle for weeks on end. Why? Because there isn't peace in the heart and in the consciousness of the citizen of this land. Why is there no peace? Why is there perpetual war? Why is there unrest? Why in this age of technological advancement do we still pull our hair out wondering how can we balance the powers of this earth? How can we avoid nuclear proliferation? How can I evade being sent overseas for an unjust war? How can I evade my daughters one day being drafted because we are falling apart in our standards as a nation? 
Well, the answer is, is when the ideal king is one day affirmed once again in this land and we repent. Only then will righteousness flourish once again and only then will peace abound. Men love money and men love war. It justifies their existence and those who are attracted to power foment these things. The scriptures say as much. We've read it before. That money is confiscated and wars are launched into arbitrarily for the cause of the powerful to remain justified in their position of holding fear over the hearts of their people. But fear of the true Messiah, fear of Jesus Christ, yields peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained to appreciate its glory and power. This is the permanence. This is the stability. This is the peace. This is the tranquility. This is the order. This is what we are looking for. And we pay other messiahs to accomplish for us. And they fall immeasurably short, bringing justice down upon our heads. But in Christ, true messiah, the true messiah, true righteousness and peace can be found. Exodus 18.21, Deuteronomy 16.29 dictates just a few simple principles of God's timeless law. Who is qualified to serve? Well, recognizing the ideal kingdom is characterized by Jesus Christ himself. Those who are qualified to serve must fear the Lord. They must show no partiality in arbitrating and executing justice. They must not take bribes. They must not pervert righteousness. These are the simple standards that the ideal that are characterized that characterize the ideal kingdom standards to which we do not return at our own peril. Standards that must be exalted for a nation to flourish. The last four will be more quick. We will move through more quickly. The ideal kingdom is characterized by influence. Verses 8 through 11, back in Psalm 72. May he have dominion from sea to sea. Who is this now? The ideal king. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. The ideal kingdom is characterized by universal influence, influence that spans this earth. You see this illustrated in three ways, geography, diversity, and sovereignty. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, summoning the geography of the entire globe as a metaphor to illustrate the scope, the realm of Jesus' kingdom. Remember sovereign subjects, realm, and law, those four elements of the kingdom? Psalm 72 answers, what is the extent of the realm of the ideal king? It is from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. It is from Tarshish to the coastlands, from Sheba to Seba. It is from the desert tribes to the highly developed cities. It is the entire globe. Not just geography, but diversity. Tarshish, we've learned of that recently. In the tale of Jonah's running away from the presence of the Lord. The furthest tip of Spain, the historian's figure, is Tarshish. Sheba and Seba over on the other side of the Mediterranean and further still opposite the Red Sea. Yemen across from Ethiopia. Those are likely the location of Sheba and Seba at this time. Areas of influence. Areas that represented the extremes and the furthest regions, reaches of the known or developed world at the time. And also desert tribes are in view, those who wander for a living, uh, as well as the idea is from there to even the cities, 
all his enemies, if they do not bow before him, must lick the dust. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. So geography and diversity, from the furthest reaches to disparate kingdoms, and then finally sovereignty, all fall down before him. Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 42, verses 10 through 12. They prophesy of messianic conditions in the future where the unity of nations will be found in their mutual affirming of Christ as Lord. Can the nations of the earth be unified by the United Nations? Well, that's its name, that's its purpose, I assume. Can the nations of, the, of Europe be unified by the European Union? Well, don't they exist to maintain peace and harmony in that continent there? Can the nations of the earth be unified by a great shared economic interest? Can the nations of the earth be, be unified by great ambassadors and negotiators meeting with figures and heads of state through the State Department? No. There is one way for the nations of the earth to be unified, and that is to bow collectively before their king. Bow collectively before their king. This is a picture of United Nations that we see in the future where every tribe and tongue and nation affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Isaiah 2 says that under these conditions, suddenly all nations stream up to the hill, to the Mount of Zion to hear the law of the Lord. They want to know the standards of righteousness and justice and so they return to the immutable, universal, applicable word of God. This is the message that we bear, brothers and sisters. We live in a time where the nations of the earth are largely blind to this fact, but they are blind to it at their own peril. They will die in their rebellion. They will be judged in their frowardness, in their wickedness, unless and until they submit to the king. Psalm 2 tells us as much. Kiss the son, lest he be angry in the way, and you perish. Kiss the son. Similar language to bowing and licking the dust. It's terms of, uh, that are pictured in this act of deference and worship, of ultimate submission to the authority over you. You lay yourself on the ground with your face in the dirt, acknowledging that the power in front of you, this king of kings over you, could destroy you in a moment's notice, and you affirm his power to do so by sort of playing dead in his presence or kissing him. Similar language that indicates the bowing before Jesus Christ that must take place in order for any nation, any people, any person to be in good standing in the ideal kingdom with its ultimate king, before the king of kings who rules today. Influence. Fourthly, salvation. The ideal kingdom is characterized by justice, permanence, influence, salvation. Verses 12 through 14 is Psalm 72. For he, again the ideal king, delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Turn to 1 Peter. While you're turning there, you'll notice three terms that, that are referred to salvation. Deliverance, salvation, and redemption are featured. And the objects of this activity for the ideal king are the poor, the needy, the destitute, the oppressed, those who are the victims of violence, those who are least capable of helping themselves. This is a glorious picture of the compassion of the ideal king. He will not rest until 
every member in his realm has received righteousness and justice. And the plight of the needy has been answered by his rule and reign. And so Christ does for us. In 1 Peter 1, verse 17, And if you call him on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Notice there's judgment, fatherhood, authority, and fear, all contextually, contextually relevant here. Verse 18, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is a picture of the salvation, the ideal king, extended to those who need it the most, and realize their need. The Beatitudes come to mind. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who realize their great need and dependency. Who was it in the book of Matthew that saw the Messiah even before they had physical sight? The blind man who confessed through the spiritual eyes of revelation, behold the son of David, the one who can heal my eyes and save my soul. The paralytic stands up with not just his body healed, but his sins forgiven because these pictures of Christ healing the leper, the paralytic, and the demon-possessed were there to communicate to us that ultimate salvation had arrived in Christ. And now the poor, the needy, the sinner, the helpless, those who cannot save themselves and recognize as much, rely on him for deliverance, salvation, and redemption. Beautifully portrayed the compassion of the ideal king in Psalm 72, 14, when it says, From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, he buys it back, and precious is their blood in his sight. And the great juxtaposition of that verse with what we just read in 1 Peter is this. Because the blood of his people is precious in his sight, he sheds his own blood to purchase us at the cost of his own life. Christ preserves us He ransoms us, He redeems, He delivers, He saves at the cost of His precious blood. A question for you, is the blood of Jesus as precious to you as your blood was to Him that caused Him to shed His blood, the ideal King laying down His life as a substitute for your sin? Think of it. The ideal King, the one who rules all creation by created right the one who gave breath and sustained the lungs of his accusers, the one who gave the power to reason to the leaders of the day, Pilate the Sanhedrin, the one who gave vocal cords to those who cried out, save yourself if you're really the Messiah, as he hung on the cross. Yet the humility of the ideal king in fulfilling the plan of the Father in giving his life as a ransom for many raises the stakes. And we see the permanence the justice, the influence, and the salvation of this great king. So now we live in his legacy. This characterizes his kingdom as well. We say with the psalmist in verse 15, Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. That is to say, may he, be, may he receive as tribute 
every conceivable and possible gift. May we lay our entire lives down, Romans 12.1, as a living sacrifice because our King is worthy who has shed His own blood to save us. May gold of Sheba be given to Him. May prayer be made for Him continually. He gives us this prayer by example in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And blessings invoke for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land and the tops of the mountains. May it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon. Why? So that greater grain offerings can be harvested and brought in to the place of worship. That the fruits of Lebanon may be reaped into the storehouses of the faithful so that they can worship him with the fruit of their blossoming cities and the grass of their overflowing fields. Verse 17, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. So may offerings and prayer and prosperity and posterity, people who call forth his name or who stand in his name and sing praises to his name endure as tribute to his fame, his renown. The ideal kingdom is marked by this kind of legacy. This is why we're here today. We have sung of the praises of Jesus Christ in our songs this morning. We are sitting with attention before his holy word declared to us this day in Psalm 72. We are here gathered because we are joyfully compelled by the salvation of our souls to bring our offerings into His presence with His people and extol Him for what He has done. Finally, and overlapping with that point, worship. The ideal kingdom is characterized by worship. Verses 18 through 20 conclude our psalm by saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. That last sort of parenthetical phrase probably indicates the close of book number two of the Psalms. But what a great occasion to close, it, close this book. What fitting words. Amen and amen. Blessed be His glorious name. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. This is the heart cry and desire for every citizen of the true kingdom. For everyone who extols and proclaims and submits and worships and has received the salvation of Christ, the ideal king. Amen, the term, you're familiar with it. But again, more closely analyzed, it means it's literally true. It's used as a substantive, that which is true, a word used in strong asseverations. That means emphatic, absolute, inarguable statements. The term amen fixes, as it were, with the stamp of truth, the assertion which precedes it, and it accompanies it with a binding oath. May we never forget, that is to say, and may we affirm with absolute certainty with the stamp of divine authenticity fixed into the wax of God's holiness delivered to us in the scroll of His Word that He, Christ, is the one whose glorious name be forever championed. May the whole earth be filled with the glory of Jesus, King of Kings. Amen and amen. This is the legacy, this is the prophecy of the ideal King, Psalm 72. And these are the standards of ideal lordship and leadership and kingship. May we be diligent 
to, boldly, to look and to glean from this passage boldness and fear and also faithfulness and worship. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, as we have looked to your testimony in Psalm 72, we see that God the Father has executed perfectly in time the prophecies of ages old. We thank you this morning that you have paid the price to preserve the justice that is inseparable from your name by offering your own body to be crucified on our behalf. We thank you that you did not remain in the grave, but you were resurrected. Further still, you ascended to receive the kingdom from your Father. We thank you that this world is now under your command, and all your subjects who refuse to bow before you will be broken the final day. We confess with Scripture that we serve a king who will one day compel every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Help us, we pray, Lord, to live in light of these truths and help us to apply them diligently, regardless of the blindness and deafness of the society that we live in. And may you be pleased to use them to call sinners to repentance as your word goes forth, sparking new life in the hearts of the lost. All for the praise and glory of your great name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.